I feel you. <laughs> okay, I think we'll start, and I'll speak slowly to let more people come into the room. But hi, everybody, a special welcome <coughs> to the Reuters Institute Fellows and to everyone else who's signed up for today's seminar. I'm really pleased to be able to get Langipoiva Sherelle Jackson with us today. Langipoiva, I'm going to call her Sherelle, is, um, is a journalist from Samoa who was a journalist fellow at the Reuters Institute in 2009-2010. She came to do a very important um, project on climate change reporting from the Pacific Islands and upon completing her fellowship went back and really changed the way local reporters view and the way they report on climate change as it affects them, so to make sure they tell their own stories rather than have the stories always framed by that of outsiders. Sherelle also came back to Oxford in October or November last year, in 2019, to speak to the fellows. And as she came to speak, she mentioned um, that there had been a measles epidemic in the Pacific Islands, and this was something she was trying to raise awareness of. And she did subsequently make sure it get, got reported in several outlets, including The Guardian. And now here we are with the world completely turned upside down with COVID-19, everybody zooming in on calls for conversations that ideally would have been happening face to face. And I really wanted Sherelle to come back and talk to us about reporting pandemics worldwide, because what we see now is that the same story of COVID-19 is affecting different countries in different ways. Certain communities are hit much harder, certain health systems are much more able to cope and others are less able to cope. And it's very important that the tone of reporting is right, that everyone, that the right voices are heard, that people don't get one narrative that ignores the fact that this is having a very disproportionately hard impact on other communities. So this is something I really want to discuss and I'm really pleased that you're able to come and talk to us about the lessons learned on, on reporting pandemics worldwide. Thank you so much. Uh, well, good morning, good afternoon and good evening. Uh, it's really good to speak to our fellows again um, and thank you again for the opportunity to present. Uh, so I'll just go straight into it. So reporting on, you know, I've been invited here to, to speak on reporting on pandemics, namely the measles and uh, COVID-19 or coronavirus. So I always like to, to start with where I'm from because I don't like to assume that people know where I'm from, uh, especially if it's a tiny little island in the middle of the South Pacific. So uh, I'm from the Pacific Islands. Uh, for those of you who don't know the Pacific Islands, you know, there's 14 countries, about 2.3 million people, uh, with the largest country not counting Papua New Guinea being Fiji with 900,000 people and Tokelau with about 1,400 people. So we're made up of three uh, cultural uh, groupings. These are Micronesia, Melanesia, and Polynesia. Uh, if you see on this map, it's inaccurate because it includes Kiribati and Hawaii. Uh, so Kiribati is not part of, of Polynesia and Hawaii, although they're culturally part of Polynesia, uh, they're not grouped as such because they are a, a US territory. Sorry, they're part of the US. So this accurately kind of just points to where I'm from, which is right that tiny little dot uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So Samoa, it's an independent country. We have about 190,000 people. That's the size. Uh, it's a sovereign nation. 
uh, we became independent in 1962. I just want to say hi to all of the Samoans who are just seeing logging in um, to this site. So we are not to be mistaken for American Samoa, which is still a territory of the US. Uh, same people, same values, uh, different funding sources uh, and different cultural influences. So we're better known for these two guys. This is where they're from. Uh, guy on the left is Manu Tuilani. I see some smiles on the screens. Uh, and the guy on the right uh, is Dwayne Johnson. So he's Samoan. These, both these guys are Samoan. And uh, for those of you who need a more recent uh, reference, we are also partly home of Moana. She was inspired by the Polynesian young woman. And Paris is a, a well-known choreographer originally from New Zealand, um, but she is also part Samoan. Okay, now you kind of know where I'm from. Uh, so who am I? Um, my name is Lani Poiva. I'm from the island of Savai, which is the bigger island in the group of uh, islands in Samoa. I've been working in the newsprint media for almost 20 years. Uh, recently, I've taken up, uh, so in the past 10 years, I've been corresponding mainly for AFP, uh, CNN, and also The Guardian. And depending on what uh, the news is, if it's a really tragic disaster that kills more than five people, you know the drill, more people are interested. Uh, so it really depends on what the story is that determines which uh, international news agency that I, I pitch to. So the AP is also one of them in AFP. So I covered measles in Samoa. Uh, so this uh, happened in September to January. And currently I'm a visiting scholar at Rutgers University. And I am currently stranded in the U.S. with my family, so I've had no choice but to report on COVID-19 from the U.S. So here's just a quick uh, kind of timeline of the measles epidemic in the Pacific Islands. Uh, as you can see here on this uh, graph, it really impacted the Pacific Islands. And so this is just a quick kind of screen grab of the numbers. Um, as you can see, Samoa was severely impacted by measles. We had over 5,600 cases. Now, keep in mind, it's a population of 190,000 people. So this is over 2% of the population were impacted. Uh, and we had 83 deaths. So when you have a number like that in a small society like ours, um, it means that everyone knows someone who either knew the person who passed a baby who passed away or knew someone who had a baby who passed away so it's that you know it's that small community impact so here's just a quick uh timeline of how uh, measles kind of unfolded in samoa so in september 2019 the uh, measles outbreak began um, in October, the outbreak was declared by the government. So it's basically them saying, okay, this is happening. These are the numbers that we have. Uh, in November 17th, uh, the state of emergency was declared. Um, so children, you know, were prohibited from public places. There was a stay at home order and so forth for children. So uh, it means my children, uh, four-year-old and seven-year-old, uh, were now you know, having to stay at home and schools were closed down. So they started um, staying home from November 2019.
by 2nd of December, a curfew was imposed. The numbers were still climbing, so a curfew was imposed by the government and there were lockdown orders. 5th and 6th December, it was a red flag day, which meant that if anyone in your family did not have, uh, was not vaccinated, you had to put a red flag in front of your house um, so that the vaccination campaign, the mass vaccination campaign would come around and vaccinate who, and, and do immunization for whoever was in the house who did not have, uh, who was not vaccinated. And this was really effective. Um, it reached over 60% of the population. But the images that came through uh, on by, you know, people putting their red flags in front of their houses was really quite um, touching. And it really drove home the impact of measles on Samoa because like my neighbors had red flags, uh, you know, so everyone was taking part in understanding the value of it. So 14th of December, they extended the state of emergency to uh, the 29th of December, which effectively cancelled Christmas. So nothing could happen, you know, uh, in terms of public celebrations. And then on 19 December, a mandatory measles vaccination bill was passed by Parliament. But I'm here to talk to you about the journalism aspect of it. Uh, I wanted to just highlight the, you know, the, the, the timeline so you have an understanding of uh, of how the story manifested itself. And I like what Mira said in the beginning, which is controlling the narrative, uh, who's telling our stories. And having noticed uh, on social media and on my own Facebook, the number of people now talking about measles, the number of people who are admitting family members uh, who was related to someone who was hospitalized, you could also see the number of people now in uh, waiting rooms in the hospital. I then pitched um, on the 25th of October, I pitched the story to an international editor, three of them. And I said, look, this is gonna be a big story. We're now over a hundred cases. And statistically, this is really significant for a small population. And, um, they didn't take the story. So the pitch was, you know, we have over 200 cases. We had one death. Um, and you just have to look at the, the WHO numbers, WHO numbers to know that that is now serious. Um, and there was no bites on the pitch. So, so I just sat back because I, I, was, uh, I was working. And on 18th of November, the New York Times published their first story. And within three hours of that story being published, I was getting calls. It's like, hey, what's happening? We need a story, so forth. And uh, so by 25th of November, uh, there were 25 deaths and over 2000 cases. Um, by this point, I was out of the country, so I could not do reporting on the ground. Um, that's about the point I was back in, in, in Oxford to present to the fellows. By the 1st of December, every news outlet in the world was covering it. You name it, mainstream news um, all over the world was covering it. New York Times, Al Jazeera, CNN, BBC, The Works. You know, it's now become like a huge story. Um, and so I started looking into it and looking at a way to cover this story so that it still had the narrative of um, Samoa and, and of uh, our Pacific Islands. 
Um, and I think the way that I'm going to tell you this, uh, it also reflects on how we gather information in the islands when it comes to, to outbreaks or national stories as such. And these are my main sources of information. And you can ask any Pacific Island journalist and they will tell you the same, that this is how we gather information now in this day and age in Samoa and in the South Pacific. Uh, so my main sources of information for the measles story was my Facebook newsfeed. Uh, because of this kind of two degrees of separation or one degree of separation theory amongst, among Pacific Islanders, amongst Samoans, you could really track the story that way. So Facebook Messenger was another, which people were sending messages behind um, their news feeds as well to kind of inform everyone of what's happening and personal stories. Um, I also like used relatives uh, or relatives and friends also reached out and kind of told this, their stories. And the governments, when the measles epidemic occurred, they were also very uh, good at issuing daily briefings uh, and also hosting press conference conferences to inform the media on what was happening. So we, uh, the media became that main source of information for a lot of the members of the public. And of course, there is a UNICEF office in Samoa and they were also very good at um, issuing the numbers and assisting in, in the expert advice aspect of the of the story. So this is how useful Facebook is. And I know we talk about all the negative things that Facebook um, that has occurred due to the misuse of Facebook. And also, you know, there's, there's a lot of negative aspects to news as a result of Facebook. But for the measles story itself, um, it was really useful in that because of this two degrees of separation or one degree of separation, and for those of you who don't know what that means, it means that you, everyone is connected by one or two people. Um, so right now you can bring a Samoan in, I can meet them and we just need to speak for five minutes and we can, and I, we can actually agree on one person that we know together. So that's how small the community is and that's how close it is, which means that the, the news gathering aspect uh, was actually simplified in that um, photos and videos, uh, people were sharing freely photos and videos of their families and babies um, as they were going through this really tragic ordeal. So even parents were posting videos um, of their babies and relatives were posting videos of parents finding out that their babies had just died. It was really, it was really heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching stuff. Uh, so parents were as a, you know, parents were accessible by Facebook Messenger or by way of relatives. So I was able to link up New York Times, uh, AFP and others to parents directly um, who had just lost a baby. Um, and this is usually done in a very sensitive way to ensure that they're not further traumatized. And what I found interesting and very Samoan about this was the receptiveness to tell their story. Like you didn't have to make a case for it. People were just simply telling their story and wanted their story to be told. So quotes were very easy to come by. So this is the story I covered. I just wanted to highlight this that I covered for The Guardian. 
Um, and this really brought together some of the uh, discontent that parents were facing as a result of like their, um, them not understanding the confusion as to why their babies had died, as to why this was such a big um, impact of the community so greatly, yet not much information was given to parents. So my main source was actually a distant relative whose baby had passed away and was held in the morgue for 10 days. Uh, she did not want to be named. Um, and I came across her because I, I was admitting my own mom to the hospital around that time. And I was sitting outside, uh, my sister and I were sitting outside waiting uh, for our mother to be checked in. When she came over, said hello, and she looked really sad. So I was like, hey, you know, what's going on? And she told me the story. She was there to visit her baby uh, who had passed away 10 days earlier. And she was traumatized by the fact that every time she went into the morgue, there was like lines of babies, dead babies in the morgue. And it was, it was a really heart-wrenching story. So that was included um, as the main part of the story that I did for The Guardian on Measles. And um, another source I had was a very close friend whose baby was in critical condition um, and near death. And she was also sharing her story freely. And these two stories really um, demonstrated the human face of what was happening. It was mothers who were struggling and wanting to make sure that their babies were safe. But, you know, one of them that was in the case. So these are the challenges and fears I had going into this um, reporting on this story. Uh, one was that I did not want to compromise jobs of relatives in the health sector. Both my sister and my brother are nurses and they were working on the vaccination campaign uh, when this happened. I did not use them um, for any information because for fear of retaliation by the authorities um, if they were going to assist me in the story. So. I knew that whatever story came out, people knew that this was my brother and this was my sister, that they would link it back to them. And that was my, that's consistently my fear and challenge is how do I make sure that it doesn't impact on those that are dear to me. And so this was that case of, you know, balancing the need to, to actually control the narrative, but at the same time, um, ensure that those, uh, my relatives were, were safe. So, the other one is that the reporting was very close to home. On every day since the first case was reported, there was a photo of a dead baby on my feed every single day. There was one day there were like six friends whose babies had died. And that's, and you can't like really, there's, there's nothing in journalism school or training that teaches you on how to cope with that. Um, and that's just being, you know, standing from the sidelines, you know, that's not even being deep in it. Like my friend who is the chief reporter of Samoa Observer, her baby almost died and she still had to report, you know, the next day. So, you know, it was a very like um, difficult story in that way that you were part of the story. Um, so. I also didn't want to compromise sources who spoke to me. For instance, the young mother who was visiting her baby in the morgue, uh, she was scared to, to tell me her name in case the authorities kept 
the baby for longer. She was already having trouble getting the body out because they were doing tests and so forth and there were delays in tests. And <clears throat> she said, I, I just want the body out, you know, and that became part of the story. So I didn't want her to face any further hindrances on what is already quite a tragic story. Uh, so in the end, we did not name her to protect her in that way. Um, I was constantly in fear of my children's safety. Uh, when I am out, you know, it's possible that I bring it back, you know, and they're fully vaccinated. They were, you know, on top of, but there's still always that fear as a mother. It's like, okay, uh, you know, are they exposed? What am I going to do? But they're fine. They're just, they just got a bit stir crazy staying at home. So moving now to COVID-19, uh, here's just a, a, a brief summary. There's been 143 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the Pacific. Uh, I'm so happy to report that Samoa is so far uh, COVID-19 free, uh, which is really welcome news given what we went through in um, 2019 uh, with the measles. But, you know, between January and now, there's been threats of cyclones um, and floods and severe weather conditions. So it's, it's almost like you don't really catch a break when you're on, on an island, there's always something. Uh, so Samoa's, uh, so seven countries closed its borders and that includes Samoa, which explains why I am now talking to you from the US. Uh, so I, there's no way for me to get home right now. New Zealand also has a, a closed border, which means that uh, I, as a non-citizen of New Zealand, cannot fly through New Zealand to get home. Uh, there are, as you can understand, no direct flights to Samoa from the US um, at the moment. So we're now awaiting to see when that closure is and that directly impacts uh, on my work. So for the Samoa, Samoa's link to COVID-19 is this. When the story broke out, there were 10 Samoan students in Wuhan, China. Uh, so the immediate concern of the country and of uh, the government um, and also us as newsmakers was how were they? Were there any plans to take them out? And so that was the link for us was that we had this personal connection to Wuhan with 10 scholarship, you know, Taiwan scholarship students. And because Facebook, they could not have access to Facebook, we also didn't have that direct communication with them. So uh, four of them were already en route home. So we were able, I was able to communicate directly with, with one of them who is from the same island I'm from. Uh, so they were communicating through other platforms to their parents and then their parents would then update their stories on Facebook and kind of inform everyone that they're doing fine. Uh, interestingly, it was the Samoan ambassador to China uh, who was providing the most excellent updates uh, on how the students were doing. And I took this screen grab of uh, them singing a song during lockdown in China. To, and this was his way of saying, okay, the kids are fine. Um, so, you know, that's how we linked the story to Samoa. So uh, I wrote the, I did cover a story on COVID-19 for The Guardian, and this is what I wrote. Um, and it was uh, on the 12th of February. And the story was, 
about eight Samoan citizens. Uh, they held no other citizenships. They were not dual citizens. And they were returning home from India after treatment, which was sponsored by the government. And they landed in Samoa and were reboarded back on the flights and told to go back to Fiji. They are not citizens of Fiji. Uh, and to me, it really like raised red flags for me. It's like, here's people of your own country arriving back after treatment and you're being told to get back on the plane and leave your only country of citizenship. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I knew there was something wrong with that. And it was right of return. There's one place in the world that you can return to and it's your country of citizenship. Um, and in a moment when these people needed to be home, they were told to get back on the plane and go to another country that's not yours. So I was sitting in New Brunswick, New Jersey, when this happened. And I saw it because a daughter of one of the eight people was put an update on Facebook saying, this is really not fair. We should have known. I went to the airport to pick them up and they weren't there. And so there was this big story of how these people were really unaware that they would be denied re-entry to their own country. So I used um, an international legal expert. So the upside of me being in the US when that story broke was that it was easy to reach experts. Um, this, this type of expertise uh, would not have been easy for me to source in Samoa. So uh, I reached out to an international legal expert who explained to me why that was wrong. Um, and who then explained, and it was key to my story that this expert, you know, clearly explained in detail what was happening. So that was a story I came up with, and um, it caused the government to explain their stance and to also, you know, there were then measures to expedite the quarantining in country um, so that the citizens were not uh, denied entry. So currently, the fact that it's on lockdown, there's no avenues for citizens like myself or my two children to return home. So we don't have, currently, we don't have that right. Uh, so these are the reporting challenges for me being away from Samoa, stranded in the US, so therefore I couldn't really do the story in Samoa. Uh, Samoa is COVID-19 free, so there's only so many stories one can cover in terms of like how the government is coping. The dateline is an interesting one. Uh, it's very difficult as a foreign correspondent to report on an issue back home when you're not home. So it's a, you know, it's a direct impact on, on my own source of income. The time difference, even if I was able to report, um, there's a time difference, so therefore interviewing people back home was a bit of a challenge. Um, but at the same time, yeah, so remote cover coverage was a challenge. So something, the commonalities in covering measles and COVID were that, you know, I both have these, this, I had the fear of repercussions on my sources, um, such as, say, for instance, a, a relative who's a nurse losing their job, uh, retaliation by authorities, uh, or impacts on, on future activities. Retaliation being they will hold the body of your baby for longer than necessary. Uh, fear for my children, that was present throughout. My poor children, they were on lockdown and measles in Samoa. We flew to the US on the 20, uh, they came to the US in February and the US locked down around the same time. So 
these poor kids, their vocab contains things like, uh, so what's our death toll today, mom? You know, so it's, it's a new reality for children. Uh, Facebook was key to both coverage, um, you know, getting information directly from, from people who were impacted and being able to contact them directly. So that was also, um, you know, a common thread with both stories. And I was personally impacted by both the epidemic and the pandemic. So these are some points to note is that the role of the gatekeeper in international news continues to compromise nat uh, nationally important issues and stories. Had those international editors taken up my pitch on the 25th of October, we would have broken that story um, before New York Times touched it. But apparently my voice as a local reporter was not significant enough to sway them to understand the value of this story. So it needed to be determined by another developed country gatekeeper, by another international news agency before it became a story of value. So therefore my understanding of my community, my understanding of news as an international reporter um, obviously didn't weigh enough uh, for the story to be covered. Had we done it on 25th of October, we would have been like, three weeks ahead of the game, but it wasn't. And that's something I face constantly in my reporting uh, because I mainly report for the wires is that, you know, there's this, uh, the gatekeeper issue, um, you know, and I see a lot of heads nodding now. Um, it's, it's really, really serious. And this also came up with our discussion with the fellows last year was that, you know, we had a Japanese fellow who had a significant story in his country and no one, none of the, the agencies, you know, were bothered by it until the accident happened um, or until it became serious enough for other international news outlets to catch on. So it's a very interesting, um, you know, point for us to, to discuss. So, and here's just my final points is that as we experience more global tragedies and crises, uh, they will impact us closer to home and more directly. My children were not able to say goodbye to their grandmother because they were banned from the hospital due to the measles epidemic. Her funeral was compromised due to the shutdown. Uh, I am stranded with my children away from our home because of COVID-19. So this impacts me, my worldview and my work. Eventually, when a global crisis hits, you also from developed countries, from countries that don't impact, who don't feel that impact directly, uh, you will experience what we in the islands feel every time something like this happens, which is really an intimate experience of hardship and loss. Thank you. Carol, thank you so much. I feel like there ought to be a moment silence. I first of all say I'm so sorry for the loss of your mother. She sounds like thank you lady and you're absolutely right that your family is experiencing loss and hardship on every level um but thank you very much for sharing her story and your story with us thank you um i'd like there are lots of questions but i'd like to stay with this point because it's absolutely crucial about the gatekeeping role of international agencies and the voice of the local reporter um, I suppose my two questions are, 
what in in your very specific case what made the new york you know what tipped it into a new york times story you know what 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 was the reason it was a new york times story was that the role of the new york times reporter um just having a kind of line to their editor or was it something else and do you what can be done about this from your perspective so i think what tipped it for new york times was that we had reached over a thousand cases uh, and I think it was two deaths by that point. Uh, but they were also, I think they were also monitoring it closely. Uh, I think it's important here that, to note that New York Times does not have a, a stringer in Samoa. Uh, so they were monitoring this from Australia. Uh, so I feel like they were looking at the story much more closely than the agencies I was pitching to. So in that sense, kind of regional proximity did make a difference in that at least it was picked up. Well, the same editors I was pitching to were also based in Australia. So their regional office was in Australia. Now, part of the issue here is that when, when the, um, the agencies sent Pacific, uh, when they set up Pacific offices, they set it up, they still set it up in a developed country. So they're, they, they're in Australia and they're covering um, stories on the islands. Can I ask about the, the domestic media, which I know it's, it's, it, we're talking about small numbers and small audiences, but what was the reporting like there? Was, that a, was it a kind of story that was recognised and picked up straight away in the domestic media? Um, the, the domestic coverage of measles was excellent. I mean, they were on it. And had the international agencies been monitoring that, uh, and I also sent links to my editor, my international editor from of local news, and I, it still wasn't weighing. Domestic media was doing an excellent job um, in covering the story on how it was impacting communities. It was telling the personal stories, the national stories, and linking it to the global impact. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go to the questions because they kind of tie into this, one from Shazia and one from Kate at the beginning, which is to do with the logistics of measles outbreak. How did the outbreak start? Um, Shazia, this is from Shazia, who's in, sitting in Norway. Um, I assume some of the babies died because they weren't old enough to be vaccinated. And then Kate, um, who's on, next to you on the screen, um, is based in South Africa, and she covered the 2019 measles outbreak in Madagascar, you know, in Madagascar for DPA and linked it to the concurrent outbreak in New York at the time, which was partly linked to the anti-vaxxers movement. So what I wanted to ask is you did mention the role of the anti-vaxxers campaign, you know, movement in the Pacific Islands. How did this tie, you know, was there one for a start and was that reported on? And crucially, if you talk about the role of Facebook, and you've talked very well about the role Facebook played in promoting news and information and creating a community, but was it also misinformation and anti-vaccination? Of course. I mean, given the fact that Facebook penetration was quite high in Samoa and in the Pacific Islands, so it was easier for the anti-vaxxers to popularize their messaging. And, you know, there's a lot of people who just believe anything that will, you know, will come on social media. And so it was it was an excellent ground for anti-vaxxers to popularize their messages. So um, anti-vaxxers kind of slowly built their following on Facebook uh, around the Pacific Islands, especially I speak for Samoa. Um, there was one specific uh, case and that particular anti-vaxxer was arrested uh, during uh, all of this was because he was still 
continuing to go against the orders of government to vaccinate. Um, I'm not a health expert, but what was noted was that the measles was brought into Samoa through New Zealand, most likely through New Zealand, uh, and that uh, the reason why the numbers were so high was because the year before we had an incident of two babies who died as a result of uh, uh, an error in, uh, in the uh, immunization of these two particular babies. So the government then made the mistake of uh, halting, of stopping the vaccination program for 10 months. So this is in the story that I wrote, because they halted in 10 months, all of the babies who needed immunization and everyone who, um, all the kids under five who needed immunization in the 10 months were therefore fully exposed. So it was almost like the perfect storm, unfortunately. So when this came in, they were all vulnerable. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for that context. Um, I'm going to go to the questions and there's one, another question on on um, from Daniela Pinheiro in Brazil, which is, could you tell us a bit more about the details from the messages and the guidance sent by the local government at the beginning of the outbreak? You know, what, you know, how clear was the messaging? Was it trusted in the community? Did people, did people understand what was going on? Did they, did they obey instructions? Mm, I think the, one of the, the biggest issues was that the, everyone felt like the, the way the declaration of the outbreak was late. Um, so the government's response was a bit delayed, uh, according to many who covered this issue. Um, and I also touched on this was if they had declared it earlier, perhaps measures could have been put in place uh, to make sure that it doesn't get worse. So people were asking, were asking to come and get vaccinated in certain places. So in a sense, they were exposed when they went um, to these uh, particular places. So the, the government's information later on became dependent, like became uh, the source of authoritative information. It was really good. But certainly their response in the beginning uh, was heavily criticized because they weren't being open about the fact that there was already measles. Like we had to wait until 200 cases to declare. Uh, when statistically it should have been done prior to that. What is the, how, what are the levels of trust in government generally in the population? It varies. Uh, there's a, there's a surge in, in dissent at the moment um, in Samoa and that's a, uh, due to many, many issues, but generally there's a lot of trust in governments, generally. Okay. Thank you. I just had a question again, going back to the um, gatekeeper role. You, you talked very eloquently about the personal repercussions that you were worried about, the fact that it would affect your, your brother and your sister and your fam family and also people you know. And given that Samoa is such a small community, chances are that anything you do and um, is going to affect somebody you know. So uh, this links to the idea of who should be telling your story. Do you feel that there's a case sometimes for outsiders who are not part of the community that they can say things that journalists from inside the community may 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 struggle with 
Yes, yes, uh, definitely. So when I have, when I know there will be an implication on myself or my family or friends and those close to me, I then ask my international colleague to do the interview or send the questions. And there's been some cases where I request it's their byline okay. uh, for it to be their byline to protect myself and those around me. So if I use a family source, the byline will be someone else's will be my international editor or so forth oh i just said that out loud <laughs> <laughs> you did <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh, let me ask another question about the nuts and bolts of reporting and this is from um, claudia romero de del canago in sao paulo and she's working at the university of sao paulo and she's asking what recommendations would you give you know, budding journalists in order to covering personal stories. Um, you know, how do you, you know, how do you cope with the lack of resources, the lack of access, and um, basically how do you keep motivated to keep reporting in these kind of very difficult conditions? Yes, uh, well, I've, I've got to say our country is not in conflict. So it's, it's a beautiful country, it is safe. So we are, we are lucky in a way that you know that that's not an that's not a an added issue. But my recommendations would be be creative, um, use international sources where national sources do not exist. Uh, ensure that you you know this because of social media is so much easier to reach sources. So always be on top of your game. Connect to influencers within your country, um, and just keep it's it's really basic journalism practice. Just keep in contact with you know valuable sources so that when these stories come around, that you can tap tap into them directly. When you are compromised uh, personally, um, take care of yourself. Uh, put yourself first and follow the work of the DAT Center for Trauma and uh, Journalism because they they have put out some really useful resources if you are impacted personally to, to make sure that you take care of yourself. But be creative, be creative. Um, and then there's a question here from, um, from I think it's actually from Samoa, Maria Bala, Dior Moila. Um, how do you, how do you sort of on a personal and professional level deal with the poor taste cartoons about the epidemics that are coming from neighboring or developed countries? And, um, and she's also wondering how, what support local journalists are receiving in covering these kind of out outbreaks in Samoa. Talifa Mari. Mari is actually a professor of journalism in, in Australia, a good friend. Uh, uh, so when the, when the measles happened, there was really this really racist, um, insensitive cartoon was published in a New Zealand newspaper making fun of the fact that measles was in Samoa. We had already reached like 30 deaths by then. Um, it's sad. It is so, so sad that we are from the same ocean and yet there was this insensitivity to the plight faced by Pacific Islanders. So how do I cope with it? I simply don't accept it. And we rallied within our own media organizations in Samoa to, to condemn the uh, the the cartoon and Samoans also pretty much came together and ensured that that particular newspaper you know apologized and took measures to to address the issue. Were you, Sorry, I, get, I just on that. Did you get support from journalists in New Zealand on your stance? Yes, we had because there's quite a large Pacific uh, community in New Zealand, 
And so they then rallied with us to ensure that, you know, it was addressed at the national level. And the point I keep making about solidarity amongst journalists is, is yes. crucial at every level, thank you. The second part of the question is, um, she was wondering what support, how much and what support local journalists are receiving in terms of covering the epidemic. We had, uh, fortunately, the correspondence that came in, one of the correspondents was a photojournalist from New York, uh, New York Times, and he offered to do some training for photojournalists in Samoa, so we were able to utilize uh, some of the contacts we had at the time to provide, or at least make the linkages so that they could get some training. Uh, at the moment, we have not had specific training on epidemic reporting or pandemic reporting, but I think it's an avenue that we can look at in the future. Well, if I can interrupt, sorry, sorry, very briefly, I didn't yeah. word that properly, but I'm wondering about, you know, the emotional toll that it's gonna, it's gonna take on all of you. And, you know, you've got children, you've got a, a colleague there that, um, who has a, a sick child and still covering the epidemics. Is there any support offered, like emotional support, mental health support, anything like that offered in these, in these situations? Uh, so no, not in Samoa at the moment. We do have peer-to-peer -peer support. We have a very active um, uh, chats groups among journalists. And so that's how we support each other. Uh, how do you cope? You kind of just, continue. Um, counseling is not really a part of our culture, so to speak. So that's a bit of a challenge. Uh, but we do have organizations like Dart Center who do reach out. And, you know, there are tools already available that we do utilize when we, um, when we face uh, stories where we are personally compromised. But essentially, it strikes me that you're all operating you're operating alone with a, a few bits of training handed out when when it's convenient but there isn't just kind of systematic support yeah there is systematic support and you know there's there's no lack of training in other areas we've received enough climate change reporting training to last us a lifetime uh, so we just, <laughs> we just need to adjust the training uh the theme so that it it matches the the issue of the day yeah, I think I think journalists everywhere do, to be honest. But, um, another question from Daniela is, which is, do you think that the Samoan population had changed, interesting question, had changed its mind um, taking the measles outbreak more seriously after the New York Times had reported it? Or was the domestic reporting enough in terms of the, you know, getting the seriousness of the message through? Uh, the domestic reporting was more than enough to get people to understand the seriousness of the situation. If anything, global reporting gets governments to kind of see how serious it is. So there's this dichotomy between like the impact of the national reporting on our communities and the impact of the global reporting on decision makers. That's interesting, thank you. Um, going back to the role of Facebook, which I think is endlessly fascinating here, and Lubna, who's in Pakistan, just asked him, you know, getting, so much of this seemed to have been done through Facebook. A lot of the connections, a lot of the reporting, a lot of the, the distribution of information. And were you concerned about the quality of the information? And did you trust, you know, was there a way of verifying what was seen? So you talked about the anti-vaccination movement, but not just that, you know, they can be smaller mischief makers. Oh, yes. Uh, of course, there were those. Uh, you know, there were people who were 
stealing images from families who had babies who passed away and using those and repurposing it and pretending like it's their relatives. But that's where the elements of verification come in. You know, I feel like we still have to do due process to the process, you know, to the news gathering um, process. So uh, there was that concern, but we also have uh, checks and balances in place to ensure. So I would have to uh, contact the person directly and get verification of their identity, of their story, and then also check, check with health sources. Um, and the beauty of, of the small community is the person who shares the story, usually you have 10 or 15 or even up to 100 mutual friends with them. So there's always those ways of verifying. And did you, did you, did anyone from Facebook um, have any direct contact with the media or the government last, at the end of last year, do you know? Just curious. No, there was no, um, there's no direct communication that I'm aware of, uh, but it's certainly, I think the concerning thing in terms of Facebook's uh, guidelines and is that there were a lot of images of dead babies. And I feel like that that would have been something that should have triggered somewhere um, because it was quite, it was getting quite graphic. And I think because we're a small community, it doesn't really register. Right. Did you, did anyone try to reach out to moderators or try and raise? I mean, I certainly myself reported some images, uh, but otherwise it, it was such a, a tragic um, time that it was actually a coping mechanism for a lot of parents to share the story, to share the images of their children. Thank you. Um, there's, a, there's a question um, from Yako, who you did meet. Um, said so you. I, I thought I had this. Said you, you showed a slide very briefly. Where you pitched other topics, and one of them was about gay scenes from downtown downtown Abbey being um, censored <laughs> in Samoa, and I wanted to know about that um, as well. So <laughs> more about that story, but also his question is: How has pitching stories to wires and international media affected your own views on journalism? What kind of stories do they want from 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 Samoa and the islands? And what would you rather they wanted if, if there's a mismatch? Yeah. Yako, that's such a good question. Uh, it takes a journalist to ask such a question. Uh, so first of all, wow, that you went in and read those three pitches. Uh, interestingly enough, guess which story they wanted me to go with? It was the third story on the censorship of the gay scenes. But you know what? That is a story that when I pitch it, I know it's taken. Like whenever there is some sort of a censorship on um, LGBTQI community, the international media snaps it up like that. So I knew when I pitched those stories that that would be the story they wanted to go with. Not the 200 cases or the fact that we would have thousands of people impacted by measles, but that particular censorship um, story. So how has it impacted my view of news? But tremendously so, because now I have to think almost in, um, I don't want to say in a white way, but certainly in a developed country way uh, and kind of have an understanding of what they go for, of what say Americans or Europeans would go for. And it's vastly different to what we in Samoa or in the Pacific Islands would find interesting. And I think a, a good point to bring in now is that 
a lot of time the smaller communities are now determining what goes viral because of that kind of like small the the connection between people uh, when a story goes viral uh, so when one or two or three salmons find it interesting and share it it quickly picks up so i feel like the the perception of our international gatekeepers need to shift to the fact that their viral audience or that their broader audience has changed it has shifted um, because we in developing countries or the global south now you know utilize news and we can access news and we also can determine what is popularized or not so it's really shifted my understanding of news because now i have two one side of me will pitch to international audience where I know that it will be attractive to international audience. And then another side of me pitches to national audience. Uh, so stories related to say national law that are significant in international community will not be covered by the international news media, but it will be greatly covered in the national media. So yeah, it's a really, really good point and question. Let me turn that on its head. You're currently in the United States um, with a massive story. If you were pitching, I don't know if you are, but if you are pitching to the your to the kind of media in Samoa about life about life in the United States, what do you what would you pitch as the stories that would possibly go viral? You know, I'm not talking about the big presidential press conferences. Oh, what yeah. are you seeing that you think the American media would not pitch? To, you know, would not write about itself that you would pitch? Yeah, so I think I personally have not written any stories about the situation in the US. I don't feel I'm well placed to do so. But I would pitch the, the experience of my children, uh, because they have gone through two lockdowns. Um, and the lockdown in the US is a lot nicer because there's so there's three streaming services, there's still parks and things that they can go to. The supermarkets are still open. There's still so much food. Uh, they're safe, the power is on, um, you know, they have a roof over their head. So there's the dichotomy between how one experiences such an epidemic in Samoa and one experiences in the US. And in the US, it's like really nice. Uh, so I would pitch the differences in, in their experience and in my own experience uh, being locked down in Samoa and in the US. That's a lovely, that's, that's a lovely, I think you should pitch that, or I think you should write that. I think it would be a great story. <laughs> absolutely read that. Thank you so much for your time. It's been, it's been so moving, this, this entire session. Um, the importance of local narratives is one I can't stress widely enough. We all have a responsibility to make sure that local voices and local journalists speak not just as fixers and stringers, but also as reporters in their own right, because they understand their communities, they have access to their communities, and they truly live with the repercussions of what, what is done and what will follow. So they'll be there once all the international media have left. So we're very great, and it's very rare to find a journalist who, 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 who can look both ways, look at the national and the international story, especially someone from the Pacific Islands. We don't meet many because there aren't many of you, but also you're a long way away um, <laughs> and you're in the wrong time zone, as you, as you rightly pointed out. So we're, we're absolutely honoured to have had you speak to us today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank take you. Care. Thank, Thank you. you. Hope to see you again. Hopefully. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. You too. Bye. Goodbye, family and friends from the Pacific. <laughs> but. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.